Okay. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke 9. Verses 1 through 17, uh, ministry and faith. You notice how often faith has come up in the book of Luke. A couple of weeks ago in the jail, I had two men that I was able to speak with. And it was very interesting. Each of these men I had been working with for a couple of weeks. And they both came to me with a similar question. A a same question kind of asked in a little bit of a different way. The idea with both of them was that question, what is faith? So we discussed faith, that which Hebrews 11 calls the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We discussed that faith is not blind, but it is rather an extension of unknown elements of life. The very things that the known elements of life command of us every day. Extending into the unknown elements of life that which the known elements of life command to us every day. When you entered into the sanctuary this evening, you sat down in a chair. You had no tangible evidence that that chair would hold you up. You could see that it had four legs. You could see that there were other people sitting in other chairs. And yet, no one in this room performed a weight test on their chair before they sat down in it. You just kind of plopped down. You exercised faith that that chair, looking like it did, having four legs and looking sturdy and perhaps on the basis of what you've experienced in the past would hold you up. You exercised a reasonable amount of faith that the chair would support your weight based upon the evidences that were around you. This is faith, not blind by any means, and yet it does require an element of personal trust in that which cannot be seen. We know this, but the question is, does this concept touch Every element of what we do as believers. Do we have faith that if we do things God's way, that he can work out the rest? Do we have faith that if we step out and do what God has promised, or we step out in faith and obey God, that he will do what is promised to us? We know that we need faith in certain areas of life. Of course, we know that we need faith when it comes to salvation. Yet, Maybe though we have put our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ unto salvation, we fight battles of faith in other areas of life. Perhaps you have fought that battle of faith with your finances, or with your health, or with some besetting sin, or with your family. You've won a battle in one area. You've won a battle perhaps in multiple areas as it comes to putting your full faith in God. But then there seem to be other areas of your life perhaps where faith is a little harder to come by. Where it's a little harder to yield. We can put up a barrier, it would seem. Where we can fully trust God in certain areas of our lives. But then we don't translate the way we've seen God work and the faithfulness that we've seen God in certain areas of our lives to other areas. And this is somewhat common. Can we trust God with other areas of the Christian life? Can we trust God in faith, in evangelism? Can we trust God in faith with each element 
of the material that we interact with on a daily basis. As we step into Luke 9, Jesus has begun stretching his disciples. In Luke 8, they were on the Sea of Galilee, and there was a great storm, and they cried out to him and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus stood up, said, Peace be still, and then looked at them and said, Where is your faith? The disciples were consumed with terror, though they had seen Jesus heal lepers. They had seen Jesus heal fevers. They had seen Jesus fill nets of fish. They had seen Jesus raise a man from the dead. And yet they were filled with terror on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had been teaching them for some time of faith. And then he expected them to live out that faith. And this week, as we step into Luke 9, he's going to take them another step farther. Not just asking them to trust him in another area, but now he's going to send them out to minister. And he's going to expect them to do so in faith. And then, as we transition out of that responsibility, that commission that he gives to them, we're going to see him call for them to exercise the same faith in another facet of life. And where they succeeded as evangelists going out and casting out demons, and where they succeeded going out and healing the sick and the lame, we will see them falter in a a different area. We will see them falter when Jesus says, the multitudes are hungry, give them to eat. And that's what we're going to study this evening from Luke 9, verses 1 through 17. The text begins and we read this. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Our text begins with Jesus calling his 12 together, giving them both power and authority over both devils, demons, and diseases. Notice that both authority over the material elements of this world was given and power over them. All right, These are two different words. Uh, that word power meaning force. Uh, that word authority, or, um, the, the word authority there meaning privilege or capacity. So they have both the power and the authority. They have both the ability and the capacity. Uh, and they, they both must be given. They would um, do over the course of these next several days nothing that they would do. However long it was that he commissioned them to go would be done in their own ability. Nor would it be done in their own authority. Only by permission and the blessing of Jesus were they able in any respect to exercise authority over devils or exercise authority over the diseases and have the power to do something about it. And the commission for which they were given this power is presented in verse 2. Jesus says, uh, the Bible says that he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So he gave them power and authority over the devils and diseases so that they could preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. The content of their message was the coming of God's kingdom, repentance and belief. The proof of God's kingdom was their ministry of healing. That as they went, they would preach the kingdom and they would heal and the healing would be proof that God's kingdom had come. And then Jesus gives his instructions as to the manner of their commission in verses 3 through 5. He says this, And he said unto them, 
Take nothing for your journey, neither staves, nor scrip, nor neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece, and whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake the very dust from off your feet for a testimony against them. So Jesus first instructs them on the logistics of their journey, that they should not take with them any provision, whether food or money. Now it says here, neither staves. A stave is a staff for walking. Um, it was standard issue to the traveler. It's actually the plural. Staves is the plural of staff. So he says, don't take staves with you. Uh, and it's important to note here that that word is plural. Staves, not singular, staff. And the reason why this is perhaps uh, of note is because of an apparent discrepancy between the command as recorded here in Luke and also recorded in Matthew 10.10, which agree, and the one that's recorded in the book of Mark. In the Mark passage, we read this. And he called unto him the twelve, Mark 6, verses 7 and 8, and began to send them forth by two and two. And he gave them power over unclean spirits and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only. No script, no bread, no money in their purse. Now in the Mark passage, we find Jesus command them that they take nothing save a staff only. And this is the discrepancy, right? Because in the, the Matthew and the Luke, it says, take nothing, don't take um, staves, don't take script, don't take bread, don't take money, don't even have two coats apiece. But then in the Mark passage, he says, take nothing except a staff. How do we reconcile those? There are a couple of theories as to how we reconcile them. Some suggest that Jesus is saying here, if you have a staff, take it. If not, don't go get one. Don't add to what you have for your journey. Just take what you already have. But it seems unlikely that any of these men following Jesus would not already have had a staff with how much they walked. It was, like I said, it was kind of standard fare for the day. So that seems somewhat unlikely. Some suggest that Matthew and Mark were heightening the command of Jesus to emphasize the spirit of relying upon God. And just and, and so um, Mark mentioned uh, uh, a staff only, but M- Matthew and Luke mentioned no staff to heighten that element of, of dependence upon the Lord. Uh, that doesn't really make sense to me that they would be misconstruing the words of Jesus in order to make a point. Some suggest that the commission in Mark is actually a different one altogether than the one in Matthew and Luke. As Jesus will on one other occasion, we'll read about it in Luke 22, commission his followers again. This time he doesn't commission 12, he commissions 70 to go. And so maybe this is just a different commission altogether. And that we're we're looking at at two different instances. And those could be correct. Uh, Several of those have potential merit. But as I think about the, fa- the passage, the fact that, particularly here, as we read it in Luke, we see staves, the plural of staff, to me, may, is of great importance. If the Mark passage is relaying the same event as the Matthew and the Luke passage, then we find that Mark, from, from the Mark passage, that Jesus was sending them out two by two, right? So he has twelve disciples, he was sending them out two by two, which means he was sending out six groups of two. To go out into the world. He calls for them not even to have a spare coat among them. And in Mark he says take a staff. Take nothing save a staff. Singular. 
It would not contradict the Matthew and the Luke passage for Jesus to be saying in Matthew and Luke, don't take staves, multiple staffs, and for Mark to say, don't uh, take nothing but a staff. That's not actually a contradiction, is it? For Matthew and Luke to prohibit staves, more than one, but for Mark to explicitly allow one, it's not a contradiction. It's not really a problem. It seems a reasonable explanation to the conundrum. If this speculation is correct, then the next question is, why only one? I can't answer that one. I have no idea why Jesus would say, just take one. Um, Maybe it's more of a defense than it would be a walking stick type thing. I don't know. But um, either way, it's a reasonable way to explain the conundrum. Uh, And some of those other explanations might suit as well. So they were not to take staves or money or food or anything above their immediate needs. And the idea was that they were to present themselves before the people that they would go to, in the cities that they would go to, in the most simple and humble manner possible. And in complete trust that God would provide for their needs completely. Jesus then instructs them about the actual manner of their ministry. Now that he's talked about the logistics, he says that their call is to enter into cities and in those cities to preach the kingdom of God and do wonders in Jesus' name. They are to heal the sick. They are to cast out demons in Jesus' name. They were to trust God to provide for their needs by means of the people themselves. In other words, when they go into a city, if that city would receive them, then they would trust God that any, any city that had people in it that would receive him would have people whom God had prepared their hearts to provide for their needs. And they would go into those houses of the people in the city and they would allow those people to provide for their needs. They would abide there. They would make that kind of the center of their ministry. They were not to move from house to house. They were to find the one place of of a a family that was willing to take them in and provide for them while they were in that city. And they were to stay in that house and they were to minister in that city. They would become the hub of their efforts in that city. And then finally, Jesus instructs them on how to handle rejection. If they go into a city and that city does not have even one household who would receive them. If that city did not have even one home of, a, of anybody that says these are prophets the, the, of God, these are heralds of God, these are people doing wonders in Christ's name, telling us of the Messiah, if there's not even one household, he says, then when you leave that city, shake off the very dust of your feet as a testimony against them. Now the idea of that concept of shaking the dust off your feet if they will not accept the message of the gospel is that they as ministers would not waste their time trying to convince people that were unwilling to listen. To shake the dust off of one's feet is symbolic. To show that they were not even going to take the dust of that city with them. Right? So the, the dust that would collect on their sandals as they walked through the city as they got out of the city, to symbolically shake the dust off off of their feet is to say, I did my part. I did my best. I proclaimed the word of God and not even one family in this city would listen. So I'm, I'm free of responsibility. I've done my part. My hands are clean. So much so that I'm not... I'm not going to worry about you. I tried my best. I'm not even going to take the dust of your city with me, much less any other concern. That's the idea there. 
By shaking the dust off of their feet, the disciples would express the fact that they had done their best. It was not their fault that the city had rejected their message and that they were not going to leave with a troubled conscience over that rejection. It's kind of a similar thing that Pilate did when he washed his hands after saying, go ahead and crucify Jesus. Basically, what he was saying is, I want nothing to do with what's going on here. This is not my fault. This is not my responsibility. The disciples shaking the dust off their feet are saying, when you stand before God in judgment, you won't be able to point a finger at me because I did my best for you. It was not God who had rejected the people. It was the people who had rejected the message of God. So that was the command. Go, take nothing for your journey. Trust the Lord. When you go to a, a place, when somebody says that they'll take care, that they'll, they'll house you, that they'll care for you, you go into that house. Don't move from house to house. Stay in that house. If nobody in that city will accept you, then leave that city. And as you leave, shake the very dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Continuing in verse 6. And they departed, the Bible tells us, and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing Everywhere They obeyed and they journeyed all over preaching and healing. Mark describes it this way in Mark 6.13. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. It is interesting to note here in the Mark passage that, uh, again, Mark mentions healing in connection with anointing of oil. We cannot but help connect this in our minds to the command in James chapter 5. Is any man sick among you that, that, uh, that the elders of the church would come together, pray over them, and anoint them with oil for healing? The oil would be a visible sign of their faith in the power of God to heal in the name of Christ. Now, in verse 7 of Luke chapter 9, we change perspective a little bit. We've already considered uh, these next couple of verses when we talked about John the Baptist. We jumped ahead just a little bit, but we read in verses 7 through 9. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, that would be Jesus, and he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead and of some that Elias had appeared and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John, have I beheaded? But who is this? of whom I hear such things, and he desired to see him. We find here that Jesus' ministry has now piqued the interest of Herod the Tetrarch. He was the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, and he was the one that had beheaded John the Baptist. Now, when Herod hears about Jesus' ministry, the Bible says that he becomes very perplexed. That word in our King James means to be totally at a loss. The Greek word is found only five times in the entire Bible. It's found two times in Luke. It's found three times in Acts, which means all five uses are written by Luke, right? Because Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts of the Apostles. And the root of this perplexity was that there were some who were saying that Jesus was actually John risen from the dead. Now, Herod, as he looked into this more, he found that some people thought he was Elias. That would be um, the King James rendering of the Hebrew, and not, not just the King James rendering, the Greek rendering, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Elijah. Others said that he was some of, one of the other old prophets resurrected. And we might well understand why this interested Herod so much, as we know that Herod had a true respect for John. He was saddened at John's death, even though he himself was the one who gave the order to carry it out. Now, all of this amounted to Herod being very interested in meeting Jesus, a privilege which he would eventually get just before Jesus' crucifixion in Luke chapter 23. And with that, this is all we learn of Herod. 
and also all we learn about the disciples' ministry while separated from Christ. It was most likely very soon after Herod beheaded John that he heard of Jesus and that all of these things came to pass. Now Herod is very curious about Jesus. He's wondering at him just like he was curious about John. And that's really all that we hear. In verse 10, we pick up with the disciples returning from their ministry. And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So they come back and they report to Jesus about all that they had done. And as I read this, I cannot help but wonder a bit and maybe even feel a bit of familiar disappointment. I may be reaching a bit here, but um, and if you think so, please forgive me. But they were so excited about what they had done. And we'll see this attitude addressed more particularly in Luke 10. But they hadn't really done anything, had they? God had used them as a tool to do great things, but they hadn't really done anything. And I think that this is a part of a problem that is going to manifest itself in our next little chunk of this, in in verses 11 through 17. When Jesus asks them to multiply, to feed the multitudes, and all they have is five loaves and two fishes, why is it that they falter so much at that? And I wonder if it's not seen just a little bit in the perspective of when they came back and told Jesus of all that they had done. And again, I might be reaching here. After all, it could just mean these are the things that happened while we were out, right? I might be reaching a little bit. But I wonder if, even if I'm reaching linguistically, if their attitude was not just there a little bit. Look what we did. If they lost sight just a little bit of the fact that they were little more than a tool in the hand of the Master to do what he had called them to do. We'll talk about that more, quite a bit more next week in our sermon. And I just say this because if these disciples are anything like me, I fear their interest and excitement was over the physical results of the commission. The people they had healed, the demons they had cast out, that they were wondering about the things that they were able to do physically, right? All the neat things that were done. But I wonder how much they had actually... How much of that joy and how much of that excitement actually rested on those that had accepted the message of the kingdom of God? Either way, they make their report. And then Jesus takes them privately in a desert place outside of Bethsaida. After a season of intense ministry, it seems these men needed a place to rest and to refresh for peace. But indeed, it was not to be. Verse 11. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. And he received them. And spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. Jesus and his disciples went out into the desert and the people followed him. And I absolutely adore this next phrase. And he received them. Consider how Matthew 14, 15 describes it. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. He didn't turn them away and say, nope, sorry, it's my day off. He didn't go into his house and lock the door. He opened his hand and he received them. It's interesting to note in the Matthew account that the thing 
that Jesus had heard, which compelled him to take his disciples to depart from a desert place. If you go back a little bit, when it says, when Jesus heard of it, the it there is the death of John the Baptist. That's why we presume that the death happened very recently. It maybe gives us a little more insight into Herod's curiosity too, right? He had just beheaded John the Baptist. So much so that when Jesus heard of it, that's when he departed into the desert place. He had just heard of John the Baptist being beheaded. John the Baptist had just been beheaded and now Herod hears of this guy and people are saying he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. He's intrigued. But they depart. And the Bible says they departed by boat to Bethsaida. But the people followed him. How do people follow you on foot when you're on a boat? Ever wonder that? Well, here's the thing. They were in Capernaum and Bethsaida was in the northeast corner, whereas Capernaum was in the northwest corner. So to go from Capernaum to Bethsaida, they, they got in the boat and they probably just kind of followed the shoreline. Which means these people just walked the shoreline, keeping the boat in sight, and followed the boat until it landed in Bethsaida, or at least in the desert outside of Bethsaida. The boat probably hugged the coast the whole way, which is how they could follow on foot when Jesus got in a boat, uh, because it hugged the coast. He wasn't trying to lose them, but he probably was trying to give some time for rest, right? Because the people at least can't crowd you if you're in a boat. And they're on the land. So that explains that one if you were ever curious. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, uh, uh, we, uh, we already read those verses. We see that phrase, but he was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. Jesus loved them and he ached for their souls. He longed to meet their needs, so he did. And it's a beautiful picture of the character of our Savior. And one which we must never forget and never cease to emulate. So verse 11, he received them. Continuing in verse 12, the Bible says, And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitudes away that they may go into the towns and countries round about and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place. The day is coming to a close. No doubt the disciples were getting hungry and they felt compelled to suggest that Jesus send the multitudes away so that they could find places to sleep and places to eat. There were no flashlights in that day. When it got dark, it got dark. It was very likely women and children in the multitude and the disciples were likely just doing their due diligence to think of others in one sense. But Jesus saw this as an opportunity to see where, their, where his disciples were standing in their understanding and their faith. Remember, they had just come back from healing the sick, curing diseases, and casting out demons. Right? They had just come back through the authority of God from doing these great wonders. Verse 13. But he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. The disciples were troubled at Jesus' request. You give them food. We only have five loaves and two fishes, the disciples say. How can we provide food for all of these people? We'll learn in the next verse that there were about 5,000 men. And that would not have included women and children. That's a big group of people. Now, let's gain some perspective on the circumstance. 
The disciples had just come back from healing the sick, casting out demons. They had not done this in their own power. They had done it in the power of Christ through His authority and through His power. The same Jesus is telling them to feed the multitudes. And they immediately default to wondering about how they could possibly bring this to pass. Was this commission really all that much different from the one that they had just been sent on? Was it really all that different to somehow feed these multitudes than it was to cast out demons and cure diseases? And yet we dare not be too hard on them here, right? They had no basis to believe, hey, I can pray and multiply this food (laughs) through Christ. And this is indeed human nature. When it comes to the supernatural, we are notoriously bad at correlating the power of God in one area of life to the power of God in another area of life, aren't we? We're notoriously bad at saying, well, if God can take care of my immortal soul, then can he not take care of my finances? If God can take care of heaven, then can he not take care of my family, my health? We're pretty bad at doing that, aren't we? It's just kind of a human thing. Sure, God has the power to save me from a sinner's hell, but not to provide for me a job. But not to, not, not to provide for me if I give my first fruits. Not to keep me healthy. Not to protect me if I go to minister to unsavory characters. Not to provide for me that which I need or that which I want in His way and in His time. We seem to draw lines between God's power in certain areas and God's power in other areas. As if we say, God, I can trust you fully with my spirit, with heaven, with eternity. I can trust you in certain areas that I'm comfortable with. Maybe finances or maybe health, but I, I, I'm not going to trust you in these other. I, I don't. I don't believe you can do it here. We do that, don't we? So they don't even really think about a supernatural solution here. They simply think we don't have the money to feed some five, ten thousand people. Verse fourteen gives us that context. I'm missing some notes here. Well, I'm going to go off the screen for just a moment. So he says unto them, Give ye them to eat. We have no more except five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. Now, it's interesting. This is one of the few accounts where we have it in all four Gospels. We don't just have it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we actually have it in John as well. And that's what you saw on the screen just there as I was flipping back and forth. In John 6, verses 5 through 9, we read this as the account. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five loaves, barley loaves, and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? We'll talk about this more next week. This question, what are they? What is this five loaves and two fishes among so many? Now, let's talk about this discrepancy. In the Matthew, or in the Luke passage, they say we have five loaves and two fishes. In the John passage, it says there is a lad here that has five loaves and two fishes. Well, what's the difference here? Most likely, this lad was actually carrying the disciples' food. 
Most likely he was their lad. Um, you've heard it preached, and again, we'll talk about this a little bit next week. And I'm, I've, I've heard many a good pastor preach the message about this little boy that gave his lunch, right? This little boy that gave his lunch to feed the multitudes. This little boy was not giving a lunch. He did not eat five loaves and two fishes for lunch. He was most likely carrying the disciples' food. And we know that, and, and, and we can surmise this by the fact that in Luke, they say, we have five loaves and two fishes, not a boy has five loaves and two fishes that he's willing to give to us. So it's fine. I'm, I'm not disparaging the preachers that preach that. But really, it wasn't a little boy that gave us. This was their food that they had. They said, this is all we've got. This is for us to eat. We don't have enough to help. We, we, if we gave them each a little bit, there's not going to be enough to go around here if we shared with them our food. And so we see that as a little bit of a context here. Next week, we'll talk about that a little bit more, uh, just in passing, as we will be in the same passage next week as well. So he says these things to them. They don't have the finances. They don't have the supplies to feed these 5,000 people. Continuing now in verse 14. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, make them sit down by fifties. In a company. So Jesus tells his disciples, have them all sit down and break them up into groups of 50. So we're talking about 100 groups of 50 if just the men are involved. And if more, if there are women and children, then we're talking about a lot more than that. I went to one, one website out of curiosity. I went to a, one of those websites where you can calculate how much food you need for a party. Seeking how much food one would need to feed 5,000 people. Uh, one woman suggested, this woman suggested that for a party of 100, you would need 50 pounds of fish. For a party of 100. So if these people were hungry, perhaps some 500 pounds of fish might be needed to feed the multitudes. Verses 15 to 17. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and break and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude and they did eat and were all filled and they were taken up of fragments that remained to them, 12 baskets. So they sit down, Jesus takes the provision, he looks up into heaven, he blesses the provision, you know the story, he breaks it and he puts a piece in each of 12 baskets effectively, right? He's got 12 disciples. They've got 12 baskets, most likely. He breaks it into 12 pieces. He puts a piece of fish in the basket. He puts a piece of bread in each basket. And he says, now distribute it to the people. They distribute it and simply put, the baskets never ran out. Everyone ate. Everyone ate until they were satisfied. It wasn't like one of those no fun weddings, right? Where you get there and you look at the table and the plates are like that big. And, and they give you those, like the communion cups, those are the juice glasses. And you, you actually burn more calories going up time and time again, getting the food than you actually are consuming by eating the food because the plates are so small. It wasn't like one of those. Okay. These, they, they, they didn't just have a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread and then they all left unsatisfied. They ate until they were satisfied. And once everyone had eaten to satisfaction, the Bible says that 12 baskets remain. Well, here's the thing. 12 disciples, 12 baskets. Most likely what had happened here is they only had 12 baskets. They took those 12 baskets. They distributed to everyone's needs. They came back and those 12 baskets that remained meant that the baskets were just as full when they ended as when they began. That, that was what was left. Full baskets of food. 
Now, next week, as I mentioned, I'm going to preach in the same passage. We'll focus upon the principle that little is much with the Lord. And we will um, consider that together. We will rightly draw that application from the pattern of meeting. But as we have walked through Luke today, we've observed just how much Jesus wanted his disciples to understand and minister in faith. And that's what we're going to talk about in our application this evening. There's no doubt that the primary meaning of this passage has to do with faith. There's no doubt that when we see this contrast between Jesus sending out his disciples to minister and then Jesus telling them to minister to these people in food, that there's supposed to be a correlation there. So that's where we'll direct our application this evening. And point number one that I want to make, there will be five. Point number one, in faith, we minister and leave the provision to God. In faith, we minister and leave the provision to God. I might have even, I perhaps even should have put there, ministry is the most direct context, but may I just alter that a little bit for your thinking? In faith we live and leave the provision to God. When we talk about provision, we often think about provision for ministry, full-time ministers, missionaries, men and women who go out in faith and rely wholly upon the Lord's monetary provision to live, people that go to a land and they trust in the churches and they, and they trust in God to provide through His people. It's a life of yieldedness of faith whereby a believer forfeits any priority toward the material indifference for spiritual enterprises. But when we talk about leaving the provision to God, we aren't just talking about money and we certainly aren't just talking about ministry. Ministry in any context, life in, life in Christ in any context is a life lived His way. It's a life lived in reliance. It's about pouring yourself out for Christ. Whether therefore we eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our memory work for this month, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, to God and the Father by Him. Right? That's the idea. And the thing about when we pour our lives into others, when we live in such a way that we are trusting the Lord, when we're ministering to others, when we're pouring our lives into others, to some degree, one way or another, when you pour your life into someone else, you make yourself vulnerable to them, don't you? Whether what we are asked to give is money or time or emotional energy, ministry costs us something and sometimes ministry will ask more of us than we think we have. Or than we think we can give. You don't have the money, you don't have the time, you don't have the energy. You can't bear someone else's burdens right now. You can't afford to increase your investment into that person or into that ministry. Jesus told these men not to take anything for their journey. No money, not staves, not even an extra coat. But they went out, though they did not have an explicit plan of provision, they went out without fear because they had been called by God who has all and who knows all and who is capable of all. And look, whether you're talking about ministering to friends, loved ones, children, this church, or whether you're talking about simply serving the Lord in whatever capacity He has called you to serve Him, here's what you can know that where God leads, God provides. God has never called a man or a woman to do anything where He has not also made provision for them to do it. 
whether that's, look, I'm not a good speaker, and so-and-so is asking me to speak at some event, and they're asking me to do it, and I, I feel the Lord leading me to do it, but I can't speak. That's not your problem. It's not. If God wants you to do it, then He's provided for it. God wants me to give to that ministry, but that's money, and I need money, and bills, and family, and... Look, if God wants you to give, you can't outgive God. You can't do it. If, if, if He wants you to do it, then He's provided for it already. God wants me to sell everything and move on to the mission field. Well, if He's asked you to do it, then He's already provided for it. It's already there. Because that's how God works. But take careful note, where God leads, we said, God provides. Sometimes we make the mistake of going into enterprises on our own. Even spiritual enterprises. We have no direction from the Holy Spirit. He's made no indication that He wants us to do something, but for whatever reason, be it because we're guilty over our inaction, or we feel pressure from someone else, or we're trying to incur some favor of God or of man, we strike out into enterprises, spiritual or otherwise, which God has not really called us to pursue. And when we pursue these efforts, make no mistake, we do so in our own power. And though we might yet have some success, though we might see some success, though it might work out even in a way that we might want or expect, having done so in our own power, you can know this, that that the blessing of God is not in it. We will fail to have supernatural provision. And this leads us to a second concept of provision. We don't just consider material provision, money, health, time, but also capacity, right? When Jesus sent them out, he sent them out with power and authority, with the physical power and the spiritual authority to do the work. Many of us fall short of God's desire for us in ministry because we are afraid of ministry. We feel as though we don't know enough to share the gospel with others or to teach or disciple others. Maybe that we aren't qualified or even that we aren't worthy. When the disciples were sent out, they did not go in their authority. They went in Christ's authority. Not only did God call them, and not only did that mean that they had provision, but it also meant that he had, that they had his capacity. There are many great biblical examples of this concept, perhaps no greater than Moses in Exodus 3, right? Moses has spent 40 years in Midian, in the backside of the desert, having fled from Egypt. He sees a bush on a mountain called Horeb, which is burning but not being consumed. When he investigates, he finds that this burning bush is a physical manifestation of the glory of Jehovah God. God calls to Moses and commissions him to go to Egypt and to lead the children out of their captivity, to lead the children of Israel out. He tells Moses that he would become God's spokesman, operating in God's power to accomplish God's purpose, both through in Egypt and in Israel. But in Exodus 4, Moses begins giving God all the reasons why this is a really bad idea, calling him to do this ministry. All of the reasons why he's not the right man for the job. And we pick up in Exodus 4.1 where the Bible says this. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Moses says, God, here's the problem. They're not going to believe me. 
They'll just say, no, God hasn't spoken to you. You're a crazy man. Over the next eight verses, God has Moses perform two wonders. First, he tells Moses to throw a, to throw a staff down. It becomes a snake. Then to pick it back up. And it becomes a staff again. Then he tells him to put his hand into his coat and it comes out leprous. And he puts his hand back into his coat and it's clean again. Those things were not done through Moses' ability. Moses didn't even know what was going to happen when he threw his staff down. He didn't even know what was going to happen when he put his hand into his coat. They were not done through Moses' knowledge. He did them because God wanted him to do them. And then in verse 10, Moses gives the second excuse. Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. Neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Moses says, I don't talk so good. Things don't come to my mind very easily. I'm not quick on my feet with replies. My thoughts and words get mixed up. I'm not very good when I'm, when I'm under pressure. To which the Lord responds this way in verse 11. Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Look, God says, if I'm the one that made your mouth, can't I let you speak the way you need to speak to do what I've asked you to do? Have you ever experienced that when you've given the gospel? Where it's like you just start talking and they ask questions and you have answers and verses are coming to mind that you haven't really thought of for a while and at the end you kind of say wow I don't know what happened there but that was really fun that was really neat I just had answers I just I, I could speak I, at other times you're all tongue tied and you don't know what to say next but something came over you that's because the Lord is the one that makes man's mouth and where he leads He provides. The question is this. Are you willing to believe that? When you are sure that God wants you to speak to that person, when God has placed upon your heart that burden for ministry or that burden, that direction, if God is calling you, if God leads you there, then He will provide. Be it financially, be it the time, be it the energy, be it the health, be it the knowledge, be it the courage, God will provide it. Because his word tells us he will. But do we believe it enough to act on it? Now remember, this is where God leads. This is not where you lead. This is where God leads. He provides. Jesus sent his disciples in his name with his power and his authority, trusting in his provision and everything that they needed, he supplied. So too it can be for us in faith. Number two. In faith we preach. And leave the results to God. When I use that word preach again, uh, we could use the word evangelize. We could use the word declare. We could use a different word that maybe sounds a little bit less pastoral. But the idea is the same. We herald the truth of Christ. Each one of these application points could really be a sermon in itself. When Jesus commanded these men to go into the cities, he told them to stay where they were willing to be put for the duration that the city was willing to have them. If the city rejected their ministry... He told them to shake the dust off of their feet, that they had done their job, that it is not their fault when the city rejects them. Now, this is important. We understand that man has free will in salvation. 
We understand on the authority of God's word that while every man has an opportunity to believe the truth, those who are more often exposed to the truth do truly have more in quantity and perhaps also in quality opportunities to receive the gospel. And to this end, many of us ought to and rightly feel a deep compulsion to, te- to preach the word of God, to teach the gospel. Our hearts ache to see people saved. But as humans, we have a tendency to take upon ourselves more responsibility than is due. So we had an opportunity to share the gospel, and we took that opportunity, and we shared the gospel. We had the boldness to speak for Christ, but they asked us questions that we didn't know. And you know what? They didn't all pop into our minds. And we didn't have all the answers. Verses didn't always come to mind, or maybe everything went well, but then they said at the end, well, okay, thanks, I'm not really interested. And maybe you have a friend or you have a family member who you have told the gospel to once or twice or several times and they have failed to receive and now they've passed into eternity. And we're tempted to say, wow, if only I could have done more. If only I had been more convincing. If only I'd have known more verses. But you know, the gospel isn't really like that. God has not called us to win souls for Christ. And Listen closely here. He has not called us to win souls for Christ. He has called us to proclaim the gospel. He wins the souls through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women. We are the messenger. Some water, some sow, some water, Paul said, But it's God that gives the increase. So Paul told the church in Corinth. He says, I have water, I have planted, Apollos has water, but God giveth the increase. That man or woman's choice to accept the gift of the gospel and place their full trust, their full trust in Christ or to reject him is not your call to make. God is bigger than your mistakes when you're sharing the gospel. God is bigger than your inability to articulate well. And God is bigger than the limitations of your understanding. Now that's not an excuse to be lazy. But it's reminding you that when others reject your ministry, that's not on your head. That's not your fault. And you should not carry that guilt. I mentioned it already. Let's look at it explicitly. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Men are nothing but tools in the hand of the Master. Your pastor is not worthy of an ounce of your natural loyalty, save to the degree that I'm being loyal to the truths of God's word. I am nothing but a called mouthpiece for the Lord's word. And the only thing in me or through me that means anything is the degree to which God is able through my submission and yieldedness and obedience to use me to accomplish his purposes. It is a rare thing to see a tool get credit for a job, isn't it? When I see a house being built, 
I don't look at the house and say, wow, those tools really put up a nice house. Those nail guns. Those air compressors. Those, those air compressors and nail guns did a good job on that house. You don't say that. The tool doesn't get the credit because regardless of how capable or powerful a tool is, a tool is still only as good as the one who uses it, right? And the only one who deserves any credit for anything that happens spiritually in and through any of us is God. So in faith, we preach. We tell others. We be a good testimony. We live out that testimony. We show others Christ. And then we leave the results to God. And this takes faith to trust that God is big enough to handle the results and to trust that God doesn't really need us to build his kingdom. He has chosen to use us if we are willing. Number three, in faith, we receive the needy and leave the rest to God. Jesus and his disciples went out into a desert place. We might presume it was that they could rest. But when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion and he ministered unto them. You know, we learn about holiness and we learn about sin and we learn about righteousness when we come together and we open the word of God. These things remind us that the world is lost in sin. It reminds us of the dangers of sin. It reminds us of the consequences of sin. It reminds us that we need to do right. But never forget, sinners are not our enemy. Sin is the enemy. We don't fight sinners. We fight sin. We don't preach against sinners. We preach against sin. Sin. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We don't contend against people. We contend against evil. The evil that drives people. It's an evil that's within our own hearts as well. It's an evil which actively works in the unseen places of this world. Whether it is the unbeliever dead in their sins or whether it was the, it's the believer that's walking wayward from the love of Christ, we ought to see them with compassion. And one of the reasons, as we read in Galatians chapter 6, 1, is this. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The reason why we have compassion on the wayward, the reason why we reach out to the sinners is because, look, you were once an unbeliever too. And it is not beyond any of us to drift from the Lord. So we consider ourselves, lest we also be tempted. And we need to have compassion. We receive the needy. And we, re, we leave the rest to God. Fourth point, and actually this is our final point. In faith, use past victories to inform current circumstances. In the desert, the disciples missed something. I'm not necessarily saying they did something horribly wrong here. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to paint this as the disciples did really, really poorly here. But they failed to connect the power and authority that Christ had given them to cast out demons and to heal the sick with the potential of feeding these 5,000 people. And as we said earlier, we can do the same. Yes, I trusted God and I prayed and He provided for me the job which was perfect for my situation. But now it's time for that major expense and I immediately run to man's solutions to solve the problem. I don't have enough faith. 
to believe that if God can provide for me that job, then He can provide for me that extra money that I need. I completely forget the miraculous way that God before has met my needs when I'm looking for some means by which to meet my needs in the future. And we can do this. And this is just human nature. But you know, faith is a journey, is it not? It's not a destination. Faith can increase, and it increases in different people at different rates. And one of the keys to growing in faith is to allow the past victories that you have experienced to inform your next decisions. To allow the fact that God has done great things to remind me that He still can do great things and to be patient and to wait on Him and to trust Him. And thank the Lord that this doesn't just hinge upon our past victories. Thank the Lord we don't just have to trust in our past victories and failures as the basis for our learning. Thank the Lord that we can read in the Bible and we can open up to Daniel. Or we can open up to Job. Or we can read of Paul. And we can read of their victories and and build our faith on their victories. Thank God that we can open up to a book like Ecclesiastes and we can read of Solomon's failures and we can build our wisdom on the backs of his failures instead of our own. And if we will do so, if we will not just trust our own victories and failures, but if we will trust the victories and failures of those who have gone before us, trust them, trust the word of God, then our faith can grow exponentially as we trust what we have heard and seen and as it compels us to trust Him for that which is next. If God could part the seas, if God could shut the mouths of lions, if God could save the three Hebrew children from the fiery furnace, if God could do these things, then can't He handle your situation too? If you're doing what is right, and that, that, I mean, that's the condition upon which all of these things happened, right? The three Hebrew children said, yep, it would have been a whole lot easier to just bow down. Not mean it, but just to bow down to that statue of Nebuchadnezzar. But they said, no, we're not going to do it. And God was able to, to work something great in them. But we have to first obey, trust, allow our faith in past victories to inform our current circumstances. Ministry is a work of faith. Life is faith. In Luke, Jesus had taught them. He'd given them the parable of the sower and the seeds. He told them, be careful how you hear. Then He began to test their faith. He let them respond on the Sea of Galilee to see how they would. Then he sent them out to heal and to preach the kingdom. Then he asked them to feed the multitudes. You know, they weren't quite there yet. But he was stretching them. He was pushing their faith. He was seeing what they would trust. And look, the disciples' failure here can inform their future. Just like our failures can inform our own. Where have you faltered in your faith? Where have you stepped out and failed in your faith and not trusted God and taken things into your own hands? It's not right. There will be consequences. But can you at least use it to inform your future decisions? And trust that next time, I'm just going to leave it to God. 
do it his way and trust him with the results. What about you? How are you doing in your faith? Do you trust God to provide as you step out and obey? Do you trust the results to God when you step out and obey? Do you trust God's wisdom as you minister or serve or live in compassion? And do you trust that which you have known God to do in the past? And does that allow you to compel, does that compel you into a future of faith? It really comes down to faith, as we've considered now for weeks. It's not an easy topic. It's not an easy way to live. It's a blessed way to live, and it gets easier as you exercise it. But it's a hard thing to to bring your heart to the place where you're truly willing to yield all of those elements of life on the altar of Christ's will. But he gave his disciples power and authority to do what he had called them to do. He sent them out. He provided for them. He did everything that they would need and he used them to do great things for him. So too can he with us if we will but trust him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I ask that you would help us to have this faith. Uh, The specific context certainly is ministry, but there's so much more. There's so much more to a life of faith. And I know we've talked about it, and I know we've talked about it quite a bit. But Lord, please increase our faith. Help us to trust you in the little things and the big. Help us to believe that you have a plan, and help us to believe that if we do it your way, it will without fail be best for us. Father, it is with grief that I contemplate that it is only in eternity that we will perhaps understand how much more you could have done through us if only we'd have obeyed. It is with grief that I think that each of those circumstances where we didn't exercise faith and we did it our own way, even though things maybe even perceived to work out to our advantage, what we missed out on because we didn't do it in faith. And so, Father, I pray for God's people that they would have faith. Faith enough to trust. Faith enough to obey. Faith enough to do it your way and to leave the results to you. May you grant us that wisdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.